Volume Three, Chapter Three of Mr. Hogarth's Will. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Mr. Hogarth's Will by Catherine Helen Spence, Volume Three, Chapter Three, Raising the Wind. As Mrs. Peck sipped her brandy and water, putting a constraint on herself in so doing, for her natural taste would have led her to swallow it in large gulps, but that would not have answered her purpose of impressing Mr. Dempster, she began to talk of the letter she had received from Melbourne, which had distressed her so much. Her daughter was ill and dying, and her son-in-law had written to her to beg that, if she possibly could, would she come across to see poor dear Mary before she was no more, but, poor fellow, he was always hard up. A decent, well-meaning fellow he was, but he wanted push, and things had never gone rightly with him. They have never had the doctor out of the house since they have been married, and many births and many deaths keep a man always poor. Mr. Dempster, as you must know, and it's many's the five-pound note as I've given to them out of my small means to help them through at a hard pinch, and he thinks, of course, as how I can just put my hand in my pocket and pay my passage in the first steamer as quick as he thinks for to ask me, and so I would, and would never have begrudged it for my poor Mary's sake. But things has gone so contrary with me and Peck for this year back that I ain't got a penny to lay out. And there's the poor soul laying out so bad, and thinking as I'm on the road, I dare say, and me can no more get to her without wings nor she can get to me. "'What's your son-in-law by trade?' asked Mr. Dempster. "'Why, he ain't got no trade to speak of, but he's a warehouseman to Campbell and Company in Melbourne. The merchants, you know,' said Mrs. Peck. "'Then he must have a good situation and regular payment.' "'He ought not to be so badly off,' said Mr. Dempster. "'There's such expenses with a family in Melbourne, where there's much sickness especially. A very decent, good-tempered fellow he is, and don't spend his wages away from his home. Poor Mary! I well remember the day she was married, and how pretty she looked in her white gown, and she says to me, "'Oh, my mother, I can't abear to leave you, even for James, and now she is the going to leave us all.' And when little Betsy was born, and I was nursin' of her, she looked up and she says, "'Oh, mother, I don't think as I'm long for this world.' But I roused her, and said she wasn't a-dyin' then, and my words was true, for she was not going then. But now to think my bein' so far from her and her so bad." Then Mrs. Peck wiped her eyes energetically and sobbed a little. Mr. Dempster seemed to be soft-hearted and simple-minded. She thought she had made an impression, and she endeavoured to deepen it. "'I am a very old colonist. I've been in Australia this thirty year and more, travelling about from place to place. When you and Mrs. Franklin were talking about changes and ups and downs, I thought on a many as I have seen in the other colonies. There's them as I remember without a sixpence as is now rolling in gold. I don't know the Adelaide gentry so well, but I reckon they chop and change just like the others. It is very unlucky for me to be here just at this present time, for I know of a many in Sydney that I might have applied to for a loan and they'd have been glad to give me assistance. But, unfortunately, I'm on the Adelaide side, where nobody knows me. There's the Hunters of Sydney, that I was a nurse in the family. And the Phillipses of Wiriwilta, too, who I dare say would be most happy to help you, if you were straightened on the Melbourne side, said Mr. Dempster dryly. Mr. Phillips is a more liberal man than Mr. Hunter. It is not Mr. Hunter I'd look to, but his wife. She has the generous spirit, said Mrs. Peck. The Hunters are at present in London. At least Mr. Hunter and the family are. Mrs. Hunter died four years ago, said Mr. Dempster. That's a pity. Oh, dear, dear. I am sorry to hear that news. 
"'Poor dear lady, but in the midst of life we are in death,' said Mrs. Peck. "'No doubt we are,' said Mr. Dempster. "'No one knows that better than I do, for I am always living amongst the dead, and they occasionally help me to judge of people. I get a good deal of insight into character through their means, and my impression is that there is not a word of truth in all you have just been telling me. You want to go to Melbourne, no doubt, but it is not to see a dying daughter. You have other plans in view which cannot be carried out here.' Mrs. Peck was somewhat taken aback by this blunt expression of opinion, coming from a man apparently so suave and so gentle. "'Indeed, sir,' said she, "'I never heard nobody doubt my word afore, but this comes of leaving the place where you are known. It is to see my daughter that I am most wishful to go to Melbourne. No doubt I might have other reasons, for I don't like Adelaide, but it's this letter and this bad news that has made me so set on going. But I was asking no favour of you.' If I did want a loan of a trifle, I'd have paid back every farthing of it with good interest. But I think I had better draw on a friend of mine in Melbourne. I suppose that if I did that I could get the draft cashed at any of the banks? You could get it cashed anywhere, provided you showed your authority to draw, and convinced the person to whom you applied that your friend was good for the money. Under these conditions I should not mind advancing it for you myself. But you'd be rather hard to convince, I fancy, said Mrs. Peck. After the unhandsome way you have doubted my true story, I would not like to apply to you. But any advance that any one would make to me would be as safe as the bank. I have an annuity, and have had it for many years. No, said Mr. Dempster, you have no annuity. You got a sum of money instead. Mrs. Peck started at this confident assertion, but colored indignantly. How can you speak so positive about things you can know nothing about? I have an annuity from another quarter." "'For valuable services, I suppose,' said Mr. Dempster. "'Well, if you can prove that you are still in receipt of an annuity, and if you can lodge in order to forestall it, I dare say you can get an advance from any Adelaide bill discounter. But I myself would rather not do business with a person who I feel is not to be relied on.' To put an end to the revelations, true or false, of this unpleasant old woman, Mr. Dempster asked to be shown to bed, as he was tired, and he found his room, though small, was as clean and comfortable as Mrs. Franklin had been used to give him in her more prosperous days. Mrs. Peck's first attempt had failed, though it had appeared very promising. She thought she would next try Franklin, who, though he was poor, might be victimized to the extent of ten pounds. She did not think she could affect him by dwelling much on the desire she felt to see her dying daughter, though for the sake of consistency it was mentioned as her motive to get to Melbourne just at this time— but she had several sums of money due to her in Melbourne, and she was afraid, from the letters she had just received, she would lose them if she kept out of the way. There was nothing like being on the spot, nothing like prompt measures when one wants to get in money. Mr. Talbot's letter was sufficient warrant for her to raise money on Mr. Phillips's annuity, but not for the purpose of going to Melbourne, which she had unluckily betrayed. It was also rather disagreeable in its tone, and not likely to inspire confidence in any one who read it. She had only her own representations to trust to, and she certainly gave a very minute, and at the same time glowing account of her debtors and her expectations from them. But what with one thing and another she had really never been so hard up in her life. Peck had not got all his wages for harvesting, and she had been so foolish as to lend a little money in Adelaide, which she feared she could not get back. Indeed, they had a score at the inn that had lain too long, but if she could only get her own she could pay all and be quite easy. She spoke of a rate of interest for a trifling advance that rather dazzled Franklin, and he was wondering if he could not manage to raise it, 
when his wife came into the room, and stopped their talk by saying it was bedtime. When she was told of Mrs. Peck's wishes and her offers, Mrs. Franklin peremptorily refused to listen to them, saying they had no money to advance to any one. Franklin had brought them down low enough in the world by being so free in lending and in spending. If she had not taken care of the business, and worked early and late, and looked after the money so far as she had it in her power, they would not have had a roof over their heads by this time. What with the license that had just been paid, and the rent that must be paid before the end of the month, they would be cleared out, without advancing money to strangers that were in their debt already. As Mrs. Franklin was really the breadwinner, and at their present low water the purse-keeper also, Mrs. Peck saw it was of no use to press her offers on her husband in the face of such formidable opposition. On the following day she started early in the mail conveyance for Adelaide, leaving Peck behind as a pledge for the settlement of the bill, and determined to raise ten or twelve pounds somehow. With Mr. Talbot's letter in her hand she presented herself to a bill discounter in Adelaide. He understood her position at once, that she was somehow connected with, but very obnoxious to a wealthy client of Mr. Talbot's, for Mr. Phillips's name was not mentioned in the letter, and also that, like most people of her class and habits, she had spent her money before she got it. Of course she said nothing of wanting to go to Melbourne, in which case, by the body of the letter, it would be almost certain that her annuity would cease. But the discounter wanted some security against such a contingency, and asked her if she meant to stay in South Australia, according to agreement. Mrs. Peck was willing to say anything, to swear to anything, and to sign anything, for his satisfaction on this point, but her very fluency made him suspicious. "'I cannot advance this money,' said he, even on the deposit of your order to arrest what is coming to you, unless I have some collateral security, or some other name, in case of your going to Victoria. Mrs. Peck could get no one to corroborate her statements but Peck, who could be of no service to her. She felt rather in a fix. "'What should take me to Melbourne?' said she, in accents of great surprise. "'It is so much against my interest to go there, that I would never be such a fool as to quarrel with my bread and butter. But it so happens that I am much in need of money just at the present.' I am expecting money from Scotland every mail. Indeed, it was trusting to that as put me back so this quarter. I never doubted that I'd get a handsome sum from Scotland. I've got the rights to it, and if it don't come by next mail I will prosecute. You are sure to get your money well paid with good interest, if you do run just a little risk. That may be all very well, said the bill discounter. But in the meantime, can you not get any one to back you in this? I like good interest, but I cannot lend without better security." "'There's the best of security. Mr. Talbot's next payment is due in two months, and I make it over to you, and if that does not satisfy you, I would give you something more next payday, as much as would cover your risk and your trouble, and your interest, handsome enough.' "'Not at all handsome, if I chance to lose it all. One needs to keep one's weather eye open in dealing with old hands like you, Mrs. Peck.' "'Then you won't do this for me, such a trifling accommodation as it is?' "'Not without someone to back you,' said the money-lender. "'I dare say I can easily find that, if you're so stiff,' said Mrs. Peck, as she flounced off in great indignation, and with very little hope of succeeding in what was required. Here she was in possession of a secret worth so much to her, and unable to turn it to account for want of a beggarly ten or twelve pounds. The bill discounter was too sharp for her. She must try a good-natured man next, one who would be willing to do her kindness. But here again Mr. Talbot's letter— her only authority to give any security, would injure her more than with the keen man of the world. 
There was a steamer to sail on the morrow for Melbourne, and no other for a week or ten days. Every day was of the greatest consequence, for now that she had made up her mind not to make terms with Francis, but to do so with his cousins, she was eager to carry her resolution into practice, and she must get on board the Havila, if possible. She had lived some weeks in Adelaide, in rather a poor way, and in rather a poor neighbourhood, when she and Peck had come first across. She had made acquaintance with very few people, and had left Adelaide slightly in debt, but in her eagerness she was inclined to overlook those circumstances, and to hope that some one or other of her late neighbours might be prevailed on to guarantee to the money-lender, merely as a matter of form, and he might be induced to accept of it, so she turned her steps in the direction of her old residence. She looked into the shop where she had been accustomed to make her purchases of groceries, with an intention of paying the eleven shillings which she owed if things looked promising, and if it would be a good speculation. "'Well, Mrs. Smith, and how are you?' she said to the woman who kept the establishment with the favourite old Adelaide sign of General Store. "'Much as usual, Mrs. Peck. You went away rather in a hurry,' said Mrs. Smith. "'Oh, Peck had to go off to the sheep-shearing, and I had the offer of a good nursing in the country, so I had to move at a minute's warning, you see. But how are you getting on here?' "'Much as usual, Mrs. Peck, but the news is that my man came home last night, after being at them diggings for four years, and not writing me a word, good or bad, for three and more, and now he expects me to be as sweet as sugar to him after serving me so, and me had all his children to keep and do for, and got no help from him, no more nor if he was dead, and now he says is how I give him the cold shoulder. Well, to be sure, no wonder either. When a woman's been served so, she has the right to look a bit stiff.' said Mrs. Peck, who had heard during her stay in Adelaide that Mrs. Smith had passed judgment by default, and was going to take to herself another mate, which was nothing more than the absent Smith deserved. Well, to be sure, that beats cock-fighting, and what does Harris say to all this? Why, in course, he's off, and I'm in such a quandary, said Mrs. Smith. You wasn't married to Harris out and out, was you? said Mrs. Peck, who had a keen relish for such interesting news as this. No, there was two or three things as put it off, but the bands was gave in last Sunday, and I had got my gown for the wedding, and lovely it looks, and here's Smith as savage as if he had been writing to me every month and sending me money. I suppose he's come home as poor as a rat like the rest of them, said Mrs. Peck. No, no, I cannot just say that, said Mrs. Smith, relenting a little. He says he never had no luck till the last six months, and now he has come back with three hundred pounds, and he's been behaving very genteel with it, I must say, and brought presents for me and for the children. There's a shawl for me, as is quite a picture, so rich in colours. But I can't say I feel quite pleased at the way he neglected me so long. And poor Harris, too. I can't just get him out of my head all at once. That's natural enough, said Mrs. Peck, with a sympathising sigh. Here Mr. Smith came into the shop, and started at the sight of Mrs. Peck. "'Well, who'd have thought of seeing you here, Mrs.? I don't rightly recollect your name, but I know you as well as possible,' said he. "'Mrs. Peck is my name,' said she impressively. "'I recollect you well on Bendigo.' "'Many's the time I've seen you there,' said Smith, in an embarrassed tone of voice. "'I hope as you have your health, Mrs. Peck. "'Susan, my dear, you'd better give Mrs. Peck some refreshments. "'Step in, Mrs. Peck. I'm just a day home, and I ain't come back too soon neither, as it appears.' "'Susan, my dear, get out the spirit-bottle. "'Will you have brandy with hot water or cold, Mrs. Peck?' "'With cold this hot day. "'I've been half-baked travelling in that mail-omnibus twenty miles, 
and the wind blowing through it like a flaming furnace. "'And now your Adelaide dusk is making me as grimy as I'm not fit to be seen,' said Mrs. Peck, wiping her face with her handkerchief, and watching how Smith mixed her brandy and water. "'There's nothing pleases me like meeting with an old friend.' "'Nor me,' said Smith, "'if so be as she is friendly. "'Now, Susan, sit down and have a glass with us. "'Why, the woman looks handsomer nor the day I married her. "'I don't wonder at the risk I ran of being chased out of you, "'but it was rather too bad, too, was it not, Mrs. Peck? "'If my letters hadn't a miscarried, "'you would have never thought of such a thing, Susan,' "'said he, with an insinuating smile, "'handing his wife a mixture similar to that he presented to his old friend. "'If they had been written, there would have been no fear of their miscarrying,' "'she said, rather sulkily. "'Here's Mrs. Peck, my good friend Mrs. Peck, "'who will be a warrant how often I used to be speaking of you, "'and wondering what made me give up writing.' "'That I will,' said Mrs. Peck, "'who felt this little bit of romance was quite in her line. "'Many's the time I've heard him speaking about you and the children.' "'Take another drop of brandy, Mrs. Peck,' said her newly found friend. "'Thank you,' said she. "'It's better brandy than we used to get at Bendigo. "'But, really, I am in too much trouble just now to enjoy it, "'and I won't take no more nor the single glass. "'It's a bad world and a sad one, "'and I seem to have more than my share of trouble.' "'Dear me! Mrs. Peck, I am sorry to hear that, "'and I am sure I wish I could do anything to help you,' said Smith. "'I don't like imposing on people that I haven't no claims on, "'but I am in great need of twelve pounds just for a little while. "'I have an annuity, as I dare say you heard at Bendigo.' "'Yes, I heard it,' said Smith, "'who appeared indisposed to contradict or doubt anything that Mrs. Peck said. "'But we have been tried with the sickness and doctor's bills, Peck and me, "'and I am very backward with the world just at present. "'If anybody could lend me twelve pounds for two months, "'they'd get principal and interest handsome. "'You being an old friend turned up, and me knowing you so well at Bendigo,' "'makes me bold enough to ask you for this little temporary assistance. "'I would deposit an order for the money with you, "'if you will be so good as to advance it.' "'Certainly, Mrs. Peck, I am not the one to be backward when a friend is in need, "'and I know it will be safe enough to be paid. "'Susan, it is perfectly safe. "'Mrs. Peck had money regular every quarter, to my knowledge, "'and if she wants the money now it shall be paid down on the nail.' and Smith told out the twelve pounds into Mrs. Peck's hands, and received an order for repayment on Mr. Talbot, which was not to be presented for two months. Mrs. Peck was overjoyed at her unexpected good luck in meeting with this returned digger, whom she had known very well at Bendigo under another name, and where he passed himself off as the husband of another woman. She perceived that, now he had found his wife in Adelaide, doing very well in business, he would rather that she heard nothing of his own little infidelities, particularly in the first days of meeting, and his probable loss of the money he advanced was not too high a price to pay to purchase silence. Everything had turned out most propitiously for Mrs. Peck so far. The information from Mr. Dempster showed that all her object of interest were collected in one spot, and this recognition of Smith put into her hands the means to get to them, while Mr. Phillips was absent. She was flushed with hope and confident expectation when she made her purchases of some articles of ready-made clothing, and took out her passage to Melbourne in the Havila, to prosecute her plans for revenge on Francis, and advantages to herself. End of Volume 3, Chapter 3